This is UCD Business Impact, a new podcast series from the UCD College of Business, Ireland's leading business school. And each week, we'll be joined by world-renowned academics from across the College of Business, as well as industry leaders, to discuss the most compelling business issues facing Ireland and the world. Our experts each week will offer insight, spark curiosity, and challenge you to rethink how you do business in a changing world. I'm your host, Emmett Oliver, financial editor and journalist and lecturer at UCD College of Business. Now, it appears everyone, literally everyone, has an opinion on developing a COVID-19 vaccine. Should one take one? Will it be safe? Will there even be one? Some political leaders in recent weeks have even tried to try early prototypes of their vaccine out on their children. But what is it like to actually develop a successful drug or treatment? How lucky or fortunate do you have to be? How much chance is involved? And how frustrating is the whole process? And what are the skills you need to be successful in bringing a life-saving drug or therapy to the market? We all want to know the answers in the current context, but also students who listen in to us here on the Business Impact Podcast may also want to know from the perspective of developing their careers and what kind of skill sets they need to build up to be successful in that field in the first place. Now, uh, today's guest is a man who has been there, a man who's won awards for developing treatments for AIDS, for instance, and that is Professor Jan Rosier, and he's joining me on today's Business Impact Podcast. He's the Professor of Business of Biotechnology at UCD Business School. He has two PhDs, one in management and one in pharmaceuticals, and he's previously worked with Johnson & Johnson, where, as I said, he won an award for developing drugs and treatments for AIDS. He's also the author of Global Drug Development, a highly influential book in the academic world that he's from. He's also involved in the Diploma in Strategic Growth, Biotech and Pharma course here at UCD and a whole range of other academic programs. He also lectures in other universities outside Ireland and is really somebody who knows more than anyone I think we've had on this podcast before about the whole drug development process precisely and how it goes and proceeds. You're very welcome to the podcast, Jan. Thank you very much, Simon. Thank you. Now, we're going to delve into the, the whole idea of pathways to drug development. How are you? can you be successful? What kind of things go your way? And the frustrations of it, the length it takes, all of that. We get into all of that. But before, I just wanted to really take a survey with you, a little short journey of what your observations are on since the pandemic swept into Asia in January and then transferred itself over to Europe and then North America. What are the two or three things, sort of high-level things you have noticed or kind of have struck you since this whole thing began? Yeah, well, well, what struck me was the impact and the scale, because this is not the first time that uh, there is an epidemic with a coronavirus. There was one in 2002, I guess, with SARS, and then 2012 with MERS, the Middle, Middle East Respiratory Virus uh, Disease. So it's not the first time. And, uh, but what is specifically characteristic of this epidemic is the scale. Uh, this is something that was difficult to expect, although it, um, uh, some people uh, have actually argued that one way or another we should expect in, in, in the coming decades uh, a, virus, uh, a viral epidemic as the one that we see today. Okay. So if people ask me, are you surprised? Well, in a way, I'm not that surprised. Of course, I'm surprised by the impact and by the scope and by the scale of the, of the epidemic. But am I surprised that there is another one taking place today? Not necessarily, no. Because it's not the first one. And because I fear that it is not going to be the last one. I think we are going to phase into, in the future, other epidemics. And not necessarily viral infections, but also maybe anti, 
resistant bacterials, bacterial infections. So we're in for a very difficult, um, I would I say a very difficult future because we will have to prepare for these treatments in a very different way than what we have done in the past. So I think this is the major lesson, well, one of the major lessons that you can draw from this epidemic, that uh, the way we have approached or we are approaching this epidemic will learn us much on how we will deal with future epidemics. And one of the reasons why this epidemic is not going to be the last one is specifically because over the previous decades, let's say centuries or century, we have removed most of the, almost half, according to some scientists, half of the habitable world um, on the earth, which makes a, which has generated an, an immense impact on the, um, the uh, distribution of what you would call rodents that carry pathogens. And in fact, that is what we see now with coronavirus, that because of that ecological imbalance that we have generated through the um, growth, economic growth, global, global growth and global, uh, global health, that that has generated quite considerable release of viral uh, viruses into the world, which we would not have seen, let's say, two centuries ago. But because of that imbalance that has been created in the natural world, that is what we face today. So I'm not... I'm, I'm surprised of the scope, the scale and the impact, but I will not be surprised if we would have, let's say, another uh, viral epidemic within the next two or three decades. And Jan, one of the things, uh, if you look at the world of seismology, they're, they're studying earthquakes and the, the thing they've always tried to get to is an early warning system of some kind. Is there some way to even yep. get a few hours warning to civilian populations when an earthquake happens? And, and they're constantly working on the science of that. Is there an yep. equivalent in the the virology world um, where, or the disease world where there's any possibility of having some kind of early warning system that a disease is, is happening and may be very spreadable, very contagious, or is that something that we, we kind of struggle with? Well, it, that is a very good question. In fact, a couple of weeks ago, there was a paper that uh, uh, was published in Nature, the scientific journal, in which it was shown that because of that ecological imbalance that we have created over the past decades and centuries, that uh, this actually leads to viral, uh, let's say, the strengthening of potential viral infections, specifically in those areas where we have disturbed the environment, as is the case. It's not a surprise that this ac actually happens from China, where there's an enormous growth taking place. Okay? And the scientists actually argue that if you want to make sure and predict what may come up in the future, then we will have to, let's say, create um, a control system and create healthcare systems or health prevention systems in those areas where the turmoil that is being generated by moving, uh, in, in moving with industrial sectors into that area would potentially be necessary. So with respect to your question, is it, is it possible to try to predict, such as is the case for earthquakes, is it possible to predict? Well, what these scientists argue is that we need to look very careful, carefully in those areas in the world where major disturbances take place, where uh, places that actually belong to nature are, let's say, removed and replaced with industrial, industrialization and, and, and all these disturbing factors. So on your answer, is it possible to predict? Difficult, but is it possible to prepare? Yes, it is, according to the scientists, at least. Okay, well, we'll see what happens there. Um, I, I certainly, you've looked at the actual 
Well, I'm sure you have. You've looked at the actual coronavirus itself. Its genome was published, I think, in February, as far as I know, and, and yeah. um, disclosed among scientists. I mean, just looking at the thing, it's a set of molecules. Um, what, what do you think of this sort of coronavirus, the COVID-19, as a, as a, if you were sort of back in your lab days, would you yeah. regard this as a very kind of um, resistant foe? Would you put it right up there as a sort of a nine or ten out of in terms of lethality and difficult to deal with? Or would you say, well, not really, it, it's more of a five or six, we've had other coronavirus. Like, where would you place this on yeah. a kind of an axis of, of diseases? Yeah, well, I think the, what is important to state, I guess, is that in a way we are quite lucky. Lucky in a sense that this is a virus that is not mutating rapidly. It's mm -hmm. rather stable. Because suppose that the virus, that the virus uh, has, would undergo frequent mutations then the potential use of a vaccine would be bothersome and it would be even be difficult or even impossible to generate a vaccine for a virus that is continuously changing. In fact, that is one of the reasons why developing a vaccine for HIV is so difficult because a virus, HIV virus, changes over, overnight, so to speak, or it changes very quickly. So it's very difficult to develop a vaccine for the HIV virus. So in a way, we are quite, let's say, safe from the viewpoint of the stability of the virus, okay? Which mm. is good news. Mm. The, the news which is less, which is more bothersome is the fact that um, the basic reproduction number for this virus may be quite high. And I mean by that, if, uh, for example, for some viruses, the um, reproduction number, which is the, uh, the uh, measure of spreading of the virus in a population, for like, let's say the, the previous coronaviruses, the, these uh, factors were quite low. But when we look to the factor for this virus, this may increase rather rapidly. And that is what we see, that in some cases the reproduction factor is one, which means that the infection is rather under control, um, by way of speaking, but it can increase up to two, three, which actually generates an epidemic. And that, of course, is the key of the concern with this virus, that it spreads rapidly through aerosols, through uh, close contact with other people who are infected. So while, while the message is positive in a sense that a virus is quite stable, it is not positive from a viewpoint that, and that it actually has its impact on the economy. The, the fact that it's not, let's say that it's, it transfers uh, rapidly and therefore has an enormous impact on the economy in a community or in a nation. Okay, so we at the same time it's good and bad news. Okay, well, uh, we'll see which one of those comes out on top in the end. In terms of the pharmaceutical industry, and I mean, you know, we've got a whole suite of companies trying to develop this vaccine, right from Russia to China. There's the Oxford um, efforts in the UK. We've obviously got Moderna, the company in North America. You know, some people are, are more keen on one solution than another and so on. But in terms of the pharmaceutical industry, how big a moment is it for the industry to be seen as being successful here to getting a quick turnaround, you know, potentially as, as little as a year to develop a vaccine on the market, which goes against everything we've been told before in terms of the window of time. I mean, how, how, how important is it for the industry to kind of get and make a contribution here, do you think, in your view? I think what, what we see today, uh, what the pharmaceutical industry is doing today, has never, has never been seen before. Okay, so that effort by the, the let's say, the whole pharmaceutical industry community, so to speak, is something which is absolutely new in the history of the pharmaceutical industry. 
I've never seen that before. And I think it's imperative that it is taking place. The fact that these companies actually engage in the development of, of, of these vaccines is very good news. The fact that they are willing to work together over and beyond the patenting and the, the, the uh, protection, the, the legal protection of, of uh, identifying vaccines or molecules is a very positive thing. So in fact, the industry is doing a lot of impressive things over the past, has been doing a lot of, and is still doing a lot of impressive things in order to come up with a vaccine. Okay? Which is um, uh, what, what, what should be added is that, of course, the speed by which that those vaccines are developed is still uh, driving the time by which a vaccine will become available. The point is that there is no such thing, and some people may argue that that is the case, and we have all heard about President Putin that the coronavirus vaccine is, has become available in Russia. Um, I think we should be very careful in assuming that there is something as a warp speed development project for vaccines or for drugs or for a small or large molecule uh, drug development. There is no such thing. Every single step of the development of a vaccine or a drug should take, it takes a lot of time because there are three key factors that need to be taken into account. The first thing that needs to be taken into account is whether the vaccine is safe. And it is a very important part because in fact, a vaccine is administered to healthy people, okay? So you should not make people sick by administering a vaccine, okay? So it should be very, very safe. The second one, it should, of course, be effective, and we'll come back to that later. It should be very effective in order to generate immunity in the patient. And the third, that's another important factor that we may discuss, is the manufacturing, okay? Because once we have developed, or once a company has developed a key concept of a vaccine, either at pilot stage or at lab scale, it still needs to be transferred in a full-scale manufacturing with, it, with its own difficulties and challenges. And there's a, lot, there's a lot of language being thrown around in this debate. There's a lot of loose language at times. We talk about cures for the, the vaccine, or sorry, for the um, pathogen. We talk a little bit about um, immunity. We talk about different types of immunity. But I, I, would you be concerned that when everyone talks in the public about immunity or protecting yourself from a virus, most people talk about that in terms of it being 100% sterilizing immunity. That's what the public think of. This is going to cure this thing. We'll never hear of it ever again. It'll just go into those books of kind of um, extinct diseases and, and that's the end of it. But that's not what we're talking about here at all, right? No, no. I think what we need to realize that based on the 150 to 200 vaccine developers that are currently trying to come up with a, with a suitable vaccine, which in fact is, by the way, is good news. Uh, if there would only be one company developing a vaccine, that would be really troublesome. But now we have a number of companies, all of them developing vaccines based on very specific and very different technology platforms, which is a good thing. But of course, um, having a vaccine that is going to cure us, let's say once and for all, is a bit naive because it may be that, let's say the first vaccine that may be developed may generate immunity for, let's say, um, six months, okay? Which would already be good news because at least if you have immunity for six months, you at least could recover one way or another from an economic point of view. And it could very well be that from the 150 drug developers, there may be one or three vaccines that become available. One for the short term, creating immunity for the community or for, for a nation, within a, for a short term and then uh, following up with a new with another vaccine that would generate immunity for a much longer term 
Okay, that is possible. But having a vaccine that will cure people from the viral infection for, let's say, uh, for the rest of his or her life is, uh, is a very bold statement. And I don't think that that is going to be the case. It may probably be the case that we will have a vaccine that, we, that will, let's say, will need to be repeated every year, every two years, depending on the outcome of the vaccine development. Right, so a little bit like the flu, which we currently have the, the exactly. shot in September. But nobody knows at this stage. Uh, that, is, that will depend on the outcome of the clinical trials. Okay, well, listen, I want to broaden the conversation a little bit yeah, into just drug development generally, because there are a thousand and one and millions of other conditions out there that aren't COVID-19 that people are looking for desperate therapies for and ones that have been very successful. You've been in the lab, you've developed um, market-leading drugs. I, I've seen the list of drugs you've been involved with on your LinkedIn page. It's not all of them I can pronounce, but they, they sound and look important. What are the frustrations of drug development? What's it like to be in there to bring something they usually just have a chemical set of chemical symbols and then you give them a product name later on. They go through all sorts of different stages. They, they can take multiple decades in some cases. Sometimes, as you said earlier about vaccines, we might get there in a few years. Just talk to me a bit about the drug development process from, from a human point of view and from a professional point of view. What's it like to be in there in the lab taking an idea a hunch maybe, um, a laboratory-based hunch, and seeing that all the way through to something sitting on a counter in a, in a local pharmacy. What's that process like? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a long process, first of all. It's a um, difficult process. And one of the difficulties that uh, people face when involved in drug development is the continuous potential of uh, failure. For example, if, let's take the example of a vaccine. Suppose that we have a certain technology platform and we're going to use that technology platform in order to develop a new vaccine uh, to treat coronavirus. The first thing that is going to happen is, first of all, specifically for vaccines, is to check whether the product is safe. That on itself requires a couple of months and it may very well be that a product shows not to be safe. So the key thing, this is the first potential for failure. You may have, a company may have developed a great technology platform or acquired a technology platform for academia, and then they start thinking about building the first, let's say, prototype of a vaccine, and then they administer it to volunteers, human volunteers. And after all these investments and all these risks, okay, because the technology platform on itself also may constitute a risk, this, they find out that the product is not safe. So what I mean by that is, what I would like to emphasize by this is that the development of a product, of a drug, is clearly a process of potential failure, okay? That leads from one step to another step, from one phase to another phase, and at each phase, something may happen. Something unforeseen, something that you did not expect, something that is dramatically wrong, for example, a very unsafe side effect, and of course, if that happens, then of course what you see is that in the end, some drug product development projects are simply stopped because the outcome is negative or the clinical trial shows that the product is not actually efficacious, that the product is not safe. And at every stage of the process, there is the potential of failure. And one of the characteristics of people working in, in drug development in this industry is that they are knowledgeable and uh, reflect on that potential failure continuously. So it's a difficult process. And it's, in a way, it's also a risky process because it, the outcome is never clear. 
And how how much does chance play in making these big discoveries? I mean, I'm going back to the the you know the late 1700s. Edward Jenner, you know, the way he discovered smallpox from reading about yeah. it, you get you get a little bit of a sense of you know <laughs> he tried a lot of different things out. One of them worked, and you know he got went on from there. Is that okay. still part of the science? Well, you you need to you need to differentiate, differentiate between research and development. Research is all about creativity, coming up with new ideas. And in drug development or in drug R&D, it means coming up with new molecules, coming up with new technology platforms from which you can start thinking about developing that into a product, into an actual drug. When it comes to research, people in research do not necessarily think in terms of probability. They do so. But the point is that research is a very creative process without actual the guarantee of a positive outcome. So the actual risk resides in the very early phases, which is the research phase. Which molecule could potentially make it? Which technology platform could be valuable for developing a vaccine? Once you reach the, the, the stage where you, or when a group of people have identified a suitable technology platform or a suitable molecule, small molecule, large molecule, then the next step is to bring that molecule or a series of molecules or a series of uh, large or small molecules into that process. And what is typical for that drug development process, although, as I said, there is a potential for failure all the time, that is that with time, the certainty about the value of the drug increases because you take that process in a very stepwise and careful fashion. You first start to assess safety, if it is not safe, you do not proceed. If it is safe, you proceed. And then you go into patients. And careful selection of patients using inclusion and exclusion criteria, you start to administer the drug. And you keep on testing on safety. So the more you enter and the more you continue and you proceed into the phase of development, the more secure you are about, about a potential outcome. Unless there is at one point such an observation, such as a major side effect, that a whole product development project should be aborted anyway, should be stopped anyway. Now, there's two parts, obviously, as, as you've referred to, there are the people in the labs who are doing the work, but there's also the funders, the people that keep the progress moving, moving on all the time. Fresh cash gets drawn down. As you said, disappointment comes, more cash is needed. I mean, is that a set of skills in itself, um, the outside the lab skills where you're trying to balance up funders, you're trying to obviously manage a budget and manage the cash flow and so on. I mean, is that like a separate set of skills from what the scientists do, or, or, or do you bring the two of them together? The, the, the two are working together continuously. Okay, when, you, when, when somebody is a member of, let's say, a drug development team, the drug development team is not only, let's say, people with scientists, but also with statisticians, with finance people, with economists, health economists. So in fact, the drug development, once the decision is made that for this specific molecule or this specific technology platform, we will proceed and bring it to the market through a drug development or a product development pathway. At that time, everybody is on board. The finance people, the health economists, statisticians, toxicologists, pharmacokineticists, chemists, pharmaceutical technologists, these teams are quite uh, large and they move from one uh, team membership to another team membership, depending on where the product is in the, uh, in the, uh, in the process of product development. But as you said, the, the, the way to think about finance in terms of uh, drug product development is an expertise. And many books have been written about how to assess 
the value of a drug and how to assess the investment that is needed. It's uh, something that is definitely present in, uh, in a very specific subgroup of venture capitalists and finance people who know how to invest, where to invest, how much to invest, and when to stop investment. It seems to me, uh, and I could be alone my own on this one, but it seems to me that a lot of the investment that goes in, if the company is a, a quoted a stock exchange listed company, is on the future revenue streams from the drug. And sometimes the actual performance of the drug in the lab kind of gets hyped up or, or gets almost forgotten as kind of an afterthought. Do you, do you believe that that's a, a challenge where everyone's saying, as of now, this drug looks on target, it's past its latest trial phase, you know, this is going to be a big blockbuster, fantastic. Whereas there are so many risks right to the very end, as you've referred to them. Um, do, do you think that sometimes we get ahead of ourselves a little bit, certainly in the financial markets, when the drug is moving along that pipeline? Yeah, I think we, um, I think we're sometimes too early, too optimistic. And that is what is a problem in the, in the uh, product development process. Um, in fact, we're doing research on the topic and we call it uh, escalation commitment. At one point, there is such a commitment to develop a product. And what happens is that that commitment takes a form in which that commitment starts to escalate beyond the point that in fact you should decide not to proceed, for, not to proceed with a drug product development, with a product development. So that's a different, def, definite risk, absolutely. And also, we haven't had a huge amount of blockbuster drugs in the last two decades. So, you know, there's always been that critique of the industry that the low-hanging fruit, and listen, that's, that's a dismissive way of putting it, but the easier treatments have been taken off, they've been, um, you know, monetized, and the tougher conditions, the, the ones maybe with small patient populations are the ones that really have eluded scientists for, for decades are, are, are still there untreated. Do you, do you, do you go with that critique, or, or do you think that's unfair? I don't think it's unfair. I think it's true. I think the low-hanging fruits have been taken away from the tree. Okay, so what we are looking for, what we are looking at at this point are um, treatments for rare diseases and treatments for, well, not necessarily rare, but specifically rare diseases, but also treatments which are very difficult to, uh, diseases which are very difficult to treat. So, um, I think at this time where we find ourselves in the history of the pharmaceutical industry, is at a point where the relationship between academia that is um, develops that that develops new approaches, um, new technology platforms, and the industry has become a key factor in the success of putting drugs on the market. And let's say if it would go back, let's say thirty years ago, research and development would be part of the industry of one firm. One single firm would do as well the research as a development. And what we see today is that we find ourselves in a collaboration between academia, looking for new molecules, looking for new technology platforms, and then the industry with all its expertise in manufacturing and drug development pathways, drug development processes, that actually what we find is, is a collaboration between public research and private development. And in a way, what we find ourselves is not so much firms doing research and development, R&D, but firms doing A and development, meaning acquisition and development. They acquire technologies and then they transfer that into product. Is that bad news? I don't think it is bad news. I think it's good news that the public, but then that 
the public recognizes that a lot of these technology platforms, a lot of these new molecules actually arise from within an academic environment. And then once that product is, let's say, ready at a certain level of, let's say, uh, knowledge and about the molecule or about the technology platform, then it is taken into the right environment, which is a development environment in which the industry is absolutely key in order to bring all these technologies developed and all these uh, uh, discoveries made in academia into the market. So we have a kind of shift from R&D within the firm to R in academia and public research to D in development and bringing together a, a new, let's say, ecosystem. So essentially what you're sketching out there is the, the big, phar- big pharma, as it's known, has subcontracted out the, the research piece to you know, university departments and labs and, and research institutes. And yeah. then they take back in, you know, the, the risk has been farmed out to some degree onto the, the public side of the economy. Is, is that fair? It is, yes. And in a way, it is uh, important to recognize this. I think it's important to recognize that, in fact, we are dealing with two partners, which each of them with a very important strength. The academic environment with its discovery potential, with its creativity, and then the development part in industry, which is very strong in quality, which is very strong in managerial context. And in fact, both, when you link both, that is in fact what we need in order to get the best drugs on the market, specifically now when we're dealing with those very rare diseases, the treatment of very rare diseases. Now, lots of our listeners, as, as you will know, Jan, are students, are current, are aspiring students. Would you recommend going into this area? It's at a very exciting um, inflection point, I suppose, the whole area of drug development, drug discovery. You can do a science degree, you can do a business degree, you can do all sorts of things that get you into um, that environment. And as you said, that very important ecosystem. What, what kind of message would you give to students who are saying, look, I've been absolutely fascinated by the COVID-19 crisis, the science around it, all the headlines, and I'd like to sort of pick up that as a career option. What's your kind of, um, what's your well, advice to them? Yes, my advice to the students would be that if you want to enter the pharmaceutical industry, you should realize that you enter an industry that is developing products that will be put in the market to treat sick people. Okay, so this is a very different industry from, let's say, the cookies industry or other industries. This is an industry that actually tries to save lives, tries to cure people, uh, uh, cure disease. So this is a very different, uh, let's say, there's a very peculiar industry in which the ethical dimension is extremely important. So going into the industry, if you want to go into the industry, uh, I think it's important to realize that this industry has a very important ethical role to play in society. That said, it also means that some firms do not yet realize that important uh, part of their responsibility. But at least this may change when people enter the industry with that focus on trying to solve problems for the weakest in, in, in our society. So you, you can do great work and also make an impact, which is for a lot Absolutely. of people the perfect. Absolutely. I think some, so a couple of weeks ago, I met one of my order, uh, previous colleagues working at J&J. And, uh, and in fact, it was one of the colleagues that I worked with when we uh, developed a, a, a treatment for HIV. And while discussing, he was a, he was a bit, uh, let's, say, um, let's say, a bit depressive. I said, well, you, you should not be, if you think about what 
all of you have realized over the past years in industry, being able to develop a drug to treat HIV patients, this is tremendous work. And this is also the way people who are interested in the industry should think about the industry, by contributing to society. Okay, well, listen, they're, they're going to be doing that in the current environment. I'm going to ask you just one very brief question, and, and do consider this very carefully before you answer. How um, do you view the chances of getting a vaccine in, say, 2021? Let's, let's take it into the next calendar year. Yes. What, what, for everything you know about drug discovery and development, you've been there, you've got the names um, of treatments to your name. What, where, where do you place yourself in terms of optimism and pessimism about them finding something next year? Well, what I, what I do not believe is since, well, when, when did the outbreak start? It started about, let's say, March, okay? This yeah. year. The, the, actually, the, in this part of the world, anyway, yeah. In this part of the world. Let's say it would, it would have started in January to take, to take a safe approach, all right? If people would come to me today, we are August, arguing that they have a vaccine available, then I would doubt whether that vaccine would be useful, okay? So if people would ask me, when do you think a vaccine could be available? Then my answer would be at the earliest, beginning next year. I think if that would be available, uh, let's say the first quarter 2021, this would be a formidably fast drug development project. I would have never seen this happening. But you, know, you never know. You may be very lucky as part of a drug development project. And of course, if regulatory authorities argue that we have a vaccine available that may cure people for the, or, or uh, generate immunity for the next six months or nine months, that would already be good news. But if people would ask me between uh, the start of next year and the next time point, the next earliest time point, that time frame, so to speak, that window, then I think by the end of 2021 would be another time, a time at which I would expect a vaccine to become available. But then again, the start of 2021, if, there, if a vaccine would become available, and I hope it does, and I hope it will be safe, that is going to be um, <clears throat> extremely, extremely fast. It's going to be a fascinating few months ahead. I really do think anyone coming into um, third level, further on than that, this is an industry that is going to be shaping our lives, shaping all our prospects, and it will be a very interesting area to get into. It's been great to talk to you today, um, Jan Rosier, who is the Professor of Business Biotechnology at uh, the Business of Biotechnology at UCD Business School. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Okay, thank you very much, Anna. Thank you.